0: Well, it's uh, good to be here this morning and uh, doing double duty. Uh, I have to admit that as I stand here, this place is a bit intimidating, especially when you consider that every week we receive such good teaching from Pastor Kevin. So to stand here and uh, bring the Word, uh, well, it's a little intimidating. But God's Word always has something to say to us. It always challenges us. And so I have no doubt today that um, he has something he wants to uh, say to you and to me and to challenge us a bit in his words. So I'm going to have you stand and we're going to be reading today from Philippians chapter two, starting in verse one and reading through verse 11, Philippians two, one through 11. If you have your Bibles, you can flip there. Uh, if not, of course, it'll be on the screen. So let's read together. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Uh, Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that uh, you always uh, speak to us through it if we will listen. So, Father, today give us ears to hear uh, what your spirit would say to us. Challenge us and change us by it. And may we have willing hearts to apply it to our lives. Uh, Use me, God. Help me to communicate your word effectively and in an understandable fashion so that uh, your church can be strengthened and your name be glorified. Uh, We love you today, and we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So turn and say hi to someone. Give them a smile, a wave. And once you've done that, uh, you can have a seat. So as I begin today, it's probably good that we go back to chapter one and see what Paul has said, at least a little bit, uh, to set up the stage for chapter two, give us a little bit of context. So uh, as we look at chapter one, at the beginning, Paul is uh, he prays with thanksgiving and joy for the Philippian Christians uh, for several reasons. Uh, first of all, for their partnership in the gospel. Uh, When he preached to them, they obviously accepted the good news. And then not only did they accept it, but they partnered with him in telling others uh, and partnering with him in that. Uh, They were also partakers with him in his imprisonment. Uh, He is writing to them from prison, and they have been encouraging to him and continue to defend the gospel even while he is in prison And they have prayed for his deliverance, and he is grateful for those prayers uh, because he obviously wants to be delivered from prison, and uh, they are praying with him to that end. Uh, Paul has a lot of affection for the Philippian church. In chapter 4, which is later uh, in the book, chapter 4, verse 1, he calls them his joy and his crown. So as Paul writes to them, he's really celebrating what God has done and and letting them know how much he cares for them and, and thinks of them. Uh, as chapter 1 ends, Paul encourages the Philippians in two ways. He says, Live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ and stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul loves the Philippian Christians and he feels such joy and he when he thinks of them and prays for them. But as we see right there, as he encourages them to stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, there's a hint that Paul sees some underlying discord developing. They have stood with him in the gospel, and now he's encouraging them to continue that and not let anything destroy the unity they have in doing that. We can see later again in chapter 4 a little bit of what that might look like. There are two ladies, Euodia and Syntyche. These ladies had served with Paul, helped him in sharing the gospel, and now it appears there's a rift between them. And Paul encourages the church there to help these ladies be reconciled. And I think maybe this is just a little picture of what's happening. And Paul sees this underlying current of of discord and he doesn't want it to take root. So he addresses it from the very beginning of of this letter to them. So that's kind of the, the foundation as we move from chapter one into chapter two. So as Paul moves into chapter two, he begins to address what he sees as the cause for their discord, for their disunity. And we read in verses three and four, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit rather in humility value others above yourselves not looking to your own interests but each of one to each one of you to the interests of others so basically what Paul is saying is here I see some selfishness going on that I want us to deal with now so that it doesn't become something bigger and hinder what God wants to do through the church Now, as he addresses this issue of selfishness, he breaks it down into three parts. The first part he calls selfish ambition. Now, if you know like I know, and I'm sure you do, we do not have to be taught to be selfish. Children are born naturally selfish, amen? When they want what they want, they'll scream, they'll throw a fit, they'll cry, they'll do whatever they have to do to get it. That's the way we're born. We don't have to be taught to be that way. No doubt we've all seen children, and sadly, perhaps some adults, throw fits when they don't get what what they want. Uh, I remember a story that my mom told about my little brother, and of course I would never tell a story about myself. I always want to tell a story about the little brother, right? But when he was young, he had quite a little stubborn streak, and he was still in a walker. Uh, so he couldn't walk on his own still in a walker and back then you know the TV was a big piece of furniture and my mom would put knickknacks on the TV and my little brother liked them and he wanted them so evidently one day he was uh, reaching for one of those and of course my mom steered him the other direction and he did not like that at all and so like a normal toddler would do he screamed his head off and cried because he wanted it and he turned right around in his walker and headed back to the TV And so my mom again turned him away. This time she spat his hand and he did not like that at all. So he let her know right away that he was not happy with her and he headed right back to the TV. Uh, As she tells the story, he did this five or six times, each time her hitting his hand a little bit to to sting and to send him away before he finally got the message, hey, I'm not going to get what I want. But this is the way we are, right? This is our natural human tendency. We want what we want, and we're going to make a fit and throw a fit until we get what we want. I've even seen a few adults. I remember uh, an adult who will be nameless that I knew very well growing up. When I was about a teenager, I saw this adult get so angry with a car salesman that uh, the car salesman would not negotiate as he wanted them to. So he literally flipped the nose of the car salesman. Now, I know that sounds crazy, but we're selfish people, and sometimes we want what we want, and we're willing to do whatever we think we can to get it. Well, in verse 3 of the NIV version here, it says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. That's what that is. That's that selfishness in us. The New Living Translation simply says, don't be selfish. So Paul addresses this right at the beginning. The Greek word for selfish ambition is eritheia. It's actually a political term. I thought that was interesting. It's a political term which speaks of desiring to put oneself forward. We're we're in an election year, so we understand this idea. Each presidential candidate does what they can to set themselves forward as the best candidate, to, to shed the best light on what they would do to help the country, right? So this is what selfish ambition is really speaking of in this Greek term. It's a partisan term. And we understand partisan, right? We understand both sides of the aisle when we talk about political things. It's a fractious spirit. It's a quarrelsome spirit. One, uh, several, translate, um, several of the commentaries I looked at simply use the word strife. So this is a fighting for what you want. When you talk about selfish ambition, it's uh, fighting to get your way. Well, clearly, as we look at Scripture, selfishness is an act of the flesh, it is not a fruit of the Spirit. If we look in Galatians 5:19 through 21, Scripture says this, the acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, and there it is, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, if I have to say, I was a bit surprised as I read through this list again that selfish ambition was listed with some of these. I mean, sexual immorality, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred and jealousy and fits of rage, and there's selfish ambition. God lumps that right in there. And I think sometimes we don't really see it that way, as that serious. But scripture tells us right here, those who are like that will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's pretty strong words, right? Pretty strong. But this wise man Solomon said this, an unfriendly person pursues selfish ends and against all sound judgment starts quarrels. So if you want to be seen as unfriendly, be selfish. And if you want to go against all sound judgment, then be selfish and start quarrels. That's what the wise man is saying. Selfishness is our natural bent. It's, what, it's the way we're made. But that selfishness is contrary to God's desire. The psalmist understood that, and he prayed this prayer. Turn my heart toward your statutes. Turn my heart toward your word, God, and not toward selfish gain. Not toward my own desires. So he desired to love the word of God and love what God loved and not be drawn to his own way. It's a good prayer for all of us to pray i'd say now as paul moves on he breaks uh, selfishness down into another term vain conceit this is the idea of trying to impress others the idea of wanting to be admired wanting to be respected to have the best seat to be sought after for your opinion to be listened to to have a degree of fame you know we want people to know who we are want to be flattered it actually reminds me of the scribes and Pharisees as they are described in Matthew 23, verses 6 and 7. It says there, But all their works they do to be seen by men, to impress others. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplace, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. They like that title, that prestige, that attention. They like to impress others. But scripture tells us that's not the way we're supposed to be as followers of Christ. And I love what one commentary said. William William Barclay said this, but the aim of the Christian is not self-display, but self-obliteration. When he does good deeds, he does them, not that men may glorify him, but that they may glorify his Father who is in heaven. The Christian desires not to focus men's eyes upon himself, but to focus them on God. He shines with a light, but the light is not his own, but the light of God shining through him. You see, as we do the good deeds that God has prepared in advance for us to do, it's not so that we get the attention and so that people are impressed with us, but it's so that people will be impressed with our God. Can somebody say amen? Amen. Paul moves on, and he breaks it down one more step here, and he talks about looking to your own interest. When we talk about being selfish, it's really about looking out for me and what I want, a concentration on myself. But see, focusing on ourselves and what we want goes contrary to all that the Bible teaches us, and specifically what Jesus teaches us. Uh, Look again here in uh, uh, our text, rather in humility, value others better than yourselves. Again, that's a focus on somebody else, not me. Uh, When we look in Matthew chapter 20, we see the account of James and John's mother. And they went to Jesus, and she asked Jesus to let her sons, James and John, sit next to him when he came in his kingdom. One on the right and one on the left. Talk about the best seats, right? So she asked uh, Jesus to do this, and how do you think the other ten disciples responded when they found out? Well, Scripture tells us it wasn't too pretty. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the brothers. I mean, after all, how dare they? I mean, I'm as good as they are. I ought to have one of those seats, right? Right? I'm as good as they are. You could just hear the quarrel going on along there. Again, that's that selfish uh, ambition, that selfish desire that is naturally in all of us. And here's how Jesus responded to them. He said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercised authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many." jesus said of himself the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and this is to be our attitude he is the example we're to follow we'll discuss that a little further in a little bit we are supposed to serve not expect to be served So there's the cause that Paul sees as the issue of disunity that he sees beginning in the Philippian church. There's selfishness. There's a desire for their own way. They're focusing on themselves, and he's challenging them to get outside of themselves and look to somebody else and be interested in somebody else. So here's the cure for the the selfishness that Paul sees. We look in verses 1 and 2, and he gives several things here to look at. He says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ. His first argument is, you're in Christ. In Christ, we are new creatures, right? We've been given a new nature. And so, in fact, if Christ has any power to influence us, if Him being in our life and us being in Him has any power to influence us, that should create in us a desire for unity, a desire to serve others, a desire to look to their interest.'" So that we might be what Jesus prayed that we would be, and that is one. He called us and prayed that we would be one. All of us individually united as one. If we look in Romans 12, 3 through 5, Scripture tells us, For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. That kind of reminds me of Philippians 2, where we're at today. But to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. I love that last phrase, because it doesn't deny the fact that we're individuals. But as individuals in the church, and in the kingdom of God, we are members of one another. This is not a Lone Ranger kind of thing. This is not a solo act. This is us individuals working together in unity as one. And this verse comes right after Paul told us not to conform to the world. You see, the world around us is very individualistic. It's really all about what I want You know, the commercials are all about if you want it, you should get it the way you want it, okay? So our culture is very individualistic, but God has called us, his church, to act as one. We are individuals, but when we come together as the church, we're to act as one in unity. We have been made one in Christ, now let us live and act as one. Uh, As I was studying for this, I thought of a movie that I kind of stumbled across several years ago. And the movie is a true story about the 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team. That's a mouthful. I had to think about that. But the hockey team for the US Olympics in 1980 was a very young American hockey team. Most of them were college-age kids. They didn't have much experience under their belt, and as they went to the Olympics, they were not expected to place at all. Uh, In fact, the Soviet Union had the team that had won for five out of the previous six Winter Olympics, and they were expected to win the gold. But here's this American team, very young, very inexperienced, uh, and their coach, Wanted to really help them make a showing at the Olympics. He didn't want it just to just be, oh, well, that's the American team and they have no hope. So he really was working them hard. But he had to really change their mindset. And so throughout the movie, there's this one scene that keeps recurring. They'd get together to practice uh, on the ice. And the, and the coach would start by saying to one of the players, what's your name and who do you play for? So this, the, the player would state his name and what college he played for. And he would go around and do two or three, what's your name, who do you play for, and they would uh, say their name and what college they played for. And so throughout the movie, you know, at the beginning of a practice, at the end of the practice, in the middle, he was continually asking them this question. It almost, uh, at times, they rolled their eyes at him because they didn't know why he was asking it. And so finally, one night, they had a really grueling practice on the ice, and they're exhausted it's in the wee hours of the morning because he has really driven them hard he's really trying to whip them into shape and he stops at the end of the, the practice as he's getting ready to let them go and he points to one of the guys and he says what's your name and who do you play for and this was like the turning point in the game for them and in this movie and finally the young man looks back at him says his name and he doesn't say what college he played for he said i play for the united states of america Suddenly he realized this was not an individual. I'm not an individual playing here on the ice doing my own thing, but I'm playing with this team which represents my nation. I'm not representing me. I'm representing something bigger than me. And it turned the tide for that team. They began to play as a team and not as a bunch of individuals just doing their thing on the ice. And that's what Paul is challenging the Philippian church to do in this text. Don't let your individualism and don't let those things, those undercurrents that uh, are happening, destroy the unity of the church. Destroy the fact that we are the church of Jesus Christ. I'm not just Clayton Bates playing for myself. I'm Clayton Bates, a part of the church of Jesus and working for the kingdom of God. That's who I am. And that's what Paul is, in, is challenging the church to realize and to not miss and to not give up. Fight for it. So he says, if there is any encouragement in being united with Christ, if we are united in Christ, we are to be one. Not a bunch of individuals doing our own thing, but one unit working as the church of Jesus for the kingdom of God. Can somebody say amen? So he goes on to say, if there's any comfort from his love, if the love of God has any persuasive power to move you, he says, that love shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit ought to change the way we interact with each other. It should change the way we talk to each other, the way we think about each other, how we interact, how we serve each other. This idea of Christ's love moving in us is about goodwill toward each other. And I I recall the night that the angels sang to the uh, shepherds in the Christmas story. He said, peace on earth, goodwill to men. That's why Jesus came to bring goodwill to us. Now we know that primarily that is between us and God. God was bringing a reconciliation between us, peace on earth between us and him, and then he was bringing his goodwill to bear on our lives and to change us. But you know what, again, once the Holy Spirit sheds that love abroad in us, it ought to change the way we work and interact with one another. It ought to change the way we serve and love one another. We see in the gospel, Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus sent out his 12 disciples, he gave them these instructions. As you go, proclaim this message. The message was one message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. That's the message, okay? When we go out, we should go with one message. Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. Okay, that's our message. He sent them out, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who, are, who have leprosy, drive out demons. These are all good things that Jesus wanted his disciples to do for other people. Did they deserve to have the power to do these things? No, but he says, freely you have received, freely you give, freely give it, give it out. So Jesus gave them the ability to do this, to do good to others, and he said, because you didn't pay anything for it, I'm giving it to you freely, then you freely give it out and that's the way he wants us to act toward one another. We see again in uh, Ephesians 4:32, he says, "Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you." Again, God forgave us freely, right? We didn't have to do anything except ask for his forgiveness and he did it. So because he freely forgives us and shows us tenderness and shows us forgiveness and kindness, we should be the same with each other, always freely giving, always freely forgiving. I love this quote from William Barclay. A man's relationships with his fellow men is no bad indication of his relationship with Jesus Christ. If our relationship with Jesus Christ is good and strong and solid, then the relationship that you and I have with each other right here and the relationship we have with others outside of here should be different. It should look and feel and be different because we're in Christ. The third thing we see here is the common sharing in the Holy Spirit if you really are sharing in the Holy Spirit, this kind of goes with the two previous statements. You see, when the love of Christ is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, again, it's going to change the way we interact with each other. Well, if we have that common sharing, it should impact every relationship that we have. And finally, number four, he says, if there's any tenderness and compassion, if you care about each other at all, Paul says, if you care about one another, Then work to keep the unity work to keep from having this division and disunity among you you know and there are going to be because there are going to be times just like we see in Philippians where we're not necessarily going to agree with the person sitting next to us or the person across the room even here and so in those moments he says if you care about each other work at keeping the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace so We see that the cause is selfishness. We see that the cure is really realizing we're in Christ and allowing the Holy Spirit to change the way we interact with each other on this human level. But then Paul goes even farther now as we move past verse 4, and he talks about the call that we have as the church of Jesus Christ. And he gives us the ultimate example. I I love this. It's so challenging, but it's so powerful. The ultimate example that we can follow to maintain unity of purpose within the church and effectively preserve our witness in this world is to be like Jesus. Now, quite uh, honestly, that is a huge uh, standard, right? I mean, when you talk about being like Jesus, being like perfection, uh, that's a bit challenging. But that's what he calls us to be so that we can maintain the unity within the church and preserve our witness in this world. So let's look at this a bit. We look in Philippians uh, chapter 2, verse 2 through 6, and he says there, You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. The first thing I want you to see here is that Jesus did not cling to his own rights. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. Jesus was God in the flesh, and he had every right, even the authority, to do whatever he wanted to do. He was God. He could have done it. But instead, he gave up those divine privileges in order to fulfill the Father's plan, the plan of redemption, to make it available to you and to me, and not only us, but everybody around the world. So Jesus was willing to give up those privileges in order to further the plan of God. Now, I want to use a modern-day example to help us kind of understand this, something that I think we can relate to uh, really well. Obviously, we are not all God, but we are, are all American citizens, right? Okay? So as American citizens, we have certain rights, correct? Okay? The, uh, the Declaration of Independence tells us that we have certain unalienable rights. We have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. According to our Bill of Rights, we have several listed there, but one of those I want to focus on today is the right to free speech. We have the right to say what we want and to let our voice be heard. And if I'm honest with you, I'm glad I live in a country where I can vote and let my voice be heard and I can uh, have an influence on what happens uh, in the nation. But Paul calls us to be like Jesus in our interactions with one another, and not necessarily cling to our rights when we are interacting with each other here within the church. So that we can advance the gospel and we can build the kingdom of God. Let's look at a few things about Jesus. The prophet Isaiah prophesied of Jesus. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led to the, like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Now, as we look into the Gospels forward uh, a bit, uh, and we see Jesus before Pilate in John 19, we read this, when Pilate heard this, the accusations of the Jews against Jesus, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from, he asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? So here's Pilate who has the power to send Jesus to the cross. Now mind you, we understand that Jesus knew where he was headed and he could have stopped it all. But Pilate's, you know, asking him questions and Jesus doesn't open his mouth. He doesn't defend himself. Why did Jesus refuse to speak? He had the right to speak. He had the right to defend himself. But he knew it was the will of the Father and therefore his purpose to go to the cross and pay the price for our redemption. So Jesus kept his mouth shut. He kept silent in order to fulfill the Father's plan. He gave up his right to speak in submission to the Father. So here's where uh, I wanna give us a little bit of a challenge, okay? So we're American citizens. We have the right to say what we wanna say, to let our voice be heard, correct, correct, And probably every day, we have opportunities to do just that. In conversations we have with people we work with, in conversations we have uh, with our family, with the neighbor across the street, we have opportunity often to let our voice be heard just in conversation. But there's this really big platform that many of us uh, use almost every day. It's called Facebook. And this is a huge platform, and if you haven't noticed, lots of people like to use it to let their voice be heard. So let's uh, let's uh, consider here that uh, you're on Facebook and there's somebody who has posted a let's let's it's political season it's a political comment and you don't agree with the political comment maybe this is another Christian and they have a different view than you do quite frankly in this room right here I'm sure that we have views on both sides of the aisle when we're talking Democrat and Republican okay so it's it's likely that you will see a view on Facebook that you don't agree with and so because you don't agree with it you have the right to say I don't agree with that and here is what I have to say and you can put it out there and a lot of times if you've seen some of the conversations I've seen those can get pretty heated those can get pretty intense and again if I'm talking to somebody else who is a believer then that makes the church look disunified In fact, it may not make it look disunified, it may be disunified. I think that Paul is challenging us a bit to consider what the greater purpose for our lives is. Yes, I have the right to say, here's my opinion about who should be president. But is that going to make me and the church stronger? Is it going to make our witness stronger? Are there unbelievers watching my conversation who might get a bad taste in their mouth? toward? Maybe they already have a bad taste in their mouth toward the church. And is my comment going to make it even worse? Would it serve the kingdom of God better if I just kept silent like Jesus did in order to further the gospel, in order not to drive a wedge in somebody's life and keep them from wanting to know Jesus like I know him? You see, because again, like that hockey team, that hockey team was more than a bunch of individuals playing hockey together on the thing. They were a team. They had a greater purpose. They were serving something bigger than themselves, and so are we. Something bigger than a hockey game in the United States of America. We are serving the kingdom of God. We are serving Jesus Christ, our Savior. And perhaps we can understand the idea of having free speech, but can we go you know what maybe I don't need to say that maybe it would serve the kingdom of God better if I just remain silent and keep unity between me and my brothers in Christ my sisters in Christ and keep from pushing the sinner the unbeliever away just a thought are we willing to not cling to our rights sometimes in order to serve the kingdom of God Jesus was God but he did not cling to his rights He's the example that Paul is giving us here. Moving on. Jesus took the humble position of a slave. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Verse 7. Slaves serve others. Look what the text says Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather, in humility, value others better than yourselves. Not looking to your own interests. Again, a slave doesn't serve themselves; they serve the other person. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. A slave serves; they are not served. As mentioned earlier, Jesus came to serve, not to be served, and he said that if you want to be great in his kingdom, then you need to be the servant, must be your be a slave. Jesus was God, but he made himself nothing he became a servant the Apostle Paul challenges us to have this same mindset toward fellow believers why in order to maintain unity and preserve our gospel witness that is the foundational piece right there we do it for the kingdom of God number three Jesus was obedient to the will of the father even to death on the cross It is clear from Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he was crucified that he did not want to suffer the pain of the cross. Remember his prayer? Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. If there is any other way, Lord, God, don't let this happen. But what did he go on to say? Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Again, Jesus died to himself, submitted to the Father's will, even though he would have rather had another way out. If there's any other way, God, let it happen. But he knew the Father had a plan, and that plan was the plan of redemption for us. So Jesus submitted himself to the will of his Father and was obedient, even unto death. And here's what he taught us. Whoever wants to be my disciple must do the same and deny it themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me denying self like jesus did even to the point of you know maybe that's what i want but i die to my desires and i and i seek the desire of the father taking up my cross daily and following jesus i'm going to ask the band and the worship team to come at this time that's a really challenging thing sometimes dying to self but jesus is our ultimate example and that he's the one we're trying to live like right Last Sunday, Pastor Jeff made a statement at the end of his message, and I think it's appropriate to restate it here because I think it fits so well with what we've been talking about. God has freed us from captivity to sin and the law so that we can be free to become something larger and more important than ourselves. That's what we're talking about here. He saves us so that we can become something more than just an individual who knows Jesus, but we can become the church and we can become something bigger than ourselves. We are freed to stand for Him who died for our sake. We're saved to be a witness, to advance the gospel of Jesus to the world around us. Would you stand? Paul understood this calling and he was concerned about the discord and the division that he saw developing in the church at Philippi. So he challenged them he challenged us to maintain unity by following the example of Jesus he said lay lay aside your rights serve the interest of your fellow believers and obey the Father by dying to yourself and all of this for the sake of furthering the gospel of Jesus and building the kingdom of God that's our greater purpose that is the greater reason Jesus saved us but if you're like me Uh, there's probably a little heart change that needs to happen because sometimes I want to say what I want to say and I want what I want and sometimes it's so hard just to be quiet and be still when I think the other person is wrong sometimes I just want to say it and if it causes a quarrel then fine but again that's that selfish ambition and I'm so challenged and I think God wants to challenge us today to be like Him. He wants to change our hearts. And so as we end this morning, I want us to sing this little song. It's familiar, but it's such a good prayer. Because so often we just need our heart to be changed and to become more like Jesus. And we need Him to do that for us. So I want you to sing with us.